Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. We begin with the 16th verse of the 28th chapter. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Gospel of the Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Did you know you bear a mark? You bear a mark. You bear a mark that shows that you've passed the test that St. Paul talks about in Corinthians. The test is what? Do you remember the second reading? If you have Christ within you. If you have Christ within you, you bear a mark, an eternal mark, You're marked as Christ's own, as we say in baptism, with the sign of the cross. Marked in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And that mark is something that goes with you every day. And no matter what you're doing, whether it's to work, or to the uh, golf course, or to the hardware store, wherever you happen to be going, you bear that mark of Christ as a Christian, if you are found In Christ. And today we're celebrating Holy Trinity Sunday. Trinity Sunday. We're celebrating the fact that the Trinity of God, the triune God, is the God that we worship as Christians because He is the only God. The only God. We're celebrating a a word, the Trinity, that actually never occurs in the New Testament. Did you know that? It never occurs in the New Testament. It can be, as the articles of religion, re, religion say, proved thereby in accordance with the New Testament. But in fact, we never get the word Trinity or the doctrine laid out to us. And yet there's ample evidence throughout the scriptures, I would say, from Old Testament into New Testament about the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, about the fact that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Creator, the Restorer, the Sanctifier. And yet, we can't limit any of the persons to one of those tasks. If we do so, we start to violate the Trinity and it starts to fall apart. It's a problem that seems paradoxical to us. How can there be three in one? 
three persons in one substance. How is that? And yet, that is the God in whom we believe. It's a unique God. A God unlike the God of the Muslims. A God unlike the God of the Eastern religions. The Muslim God is a distant God, a wrathful God, a merciless God. The Eastern religions have an ethereal God, a God who is kind of spirit and, you know, we might be part of through meditation and types of things, but he's not a person. He's something distant in a different way. No, we believe in the triune God, a God who is both imminently close to us and transcends all things. It's really hard theological stuff that we dig into in the Trinity, isn't it? And yet you can see why it's so important because in our day where people are so confused about who God is and where we bear a mark, we have to be clear about who God is, how we worship him, and why we worship him as he truly is. So we start back at the beginning on Trinity Sunday, back in Genesis chapter 1. We look and we see far different than other creation stories, far different from the stories of the pagan worldviews, far different from the scientific story of the origin of things. We see a God who's communicated to us in two ways. Number one, we see that there is a single God. We see the who of God. And number two, we see the why of God. But notice, we don't see the how, necessarily. We see the who and the why. Look back with me at the text, if you will. Look at what it says to us. In the beginning... God created. What's the word for God there? Well, it's actually Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim. It's not just any old God. It is the God, the supreme ruler and judge of all things, is what that word means in Hebrew, Elohim. And why does God create? I'll give you a hint. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 14. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 24. Look at verse 27. Are you starting to catch on? How is it and why is it that God creates in Genesis 1? Let's go with the how first. Who's... How is he creating? I can't hear you because of the fans, but I, I think I heard someone say he speaks. Yes, he speaks. He speaks into existence, right? He speaks using a word which creates. Put that in the back of your mind for a second. There's a word that creates. Our God's fundamental purpose and nature, if we can say so, is to act. St. Thomas Aquinas calls this part of creation the actus purus. The actus purus, meaning, unsurprisingly, 
the pure act, the pure act of who God is. Logically, of course, we know there has to be a first act to set anything in motion, right? There has to be some, even Aristotle got to this, a pagan philosopher, an unmoved mover that starts things going, right? And yet we hold that God is pure act, pure act, a simple thing, actually. It seems impious to say, but God is simple in that he's pure action. And he's pure creation. But he creates through a word who exists to do his bidding. Just as you speak and something comes out of your mouth that befits you and bespeaks you, right? Look, we can't even get away from it in the language. When you say something, when you give a speech, when you make a phone call, you're conveying something of yourself. So it is that when God speaks, it conveys a part of himself. A part is begotten. Who is the word begotten? Of course, we know that to be the Son, Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus is the word. And it's in fact Jesus, the second part of the Trinity, that gives us a full detail of what the first part of the Trinity, the Father, truly is. Jesus, the Word, doesn't just create, He reveals, right? And so we can truly say, if you want to know God, look at Jesus Christ, look at the Word. What does the Word do? What did the Word do? What happened to the Word? He was crucified on a cross. He died, was buried, rose again. What did the Word What did the word? What did he reveal about God the Father? Well, it's interesting, we actually don't hear about God the Father all that much until Jesus. Did you know that? You know, I think it's, it's a danger of Christianity and being well-versed in the scriptures and theology to read back into the Old Testament things that are in the New Testament, right? But if we actually look at the Old Testament, we see the word Father only used twice in reference to God. It's in Deuteronomy, and God uses it referring to himself, and Moses uses it. Do you repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you, and established you? That's Deuteronomy 32.6, the people of God being chastised because they don't see him as their father. And then, late, and then in Deuteronomy 131, way at the beginning of the book, two bookends as it were, we read this, the Lord your God goes before you. He himself will fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just like a father carries his son, in all the way which you have walked until you have come to this place. So we get that imagery a little bit in Deuteronomy, but it's not until Jesus Christ comes that we see God the Father referenced again and again and again. Jesus repeatedly sheds light on the first person of the Trinity. Why? Because that's part of his that's part of his nature, that's part of his being. He's to give glory to God the Father. He's always pointing back to God, did you notice? John 10, 30, Jesus says, the Father, the Pater, and I are one. But Jesus takes it further. And in John 14, 36, he says, 
in the midst of praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Right before he goes to the cross, after his betrayal, he cries out to his father, and he uses that Aramaic word, Abba, which is more like daddy. Daddy or dad. If I can avoid this, spare me from it, yet not my will, but your will be done. And so we see Jesus not just revealing the Father, but we see Jesus in obedience to the Father, too. It's an extraordinary privilege that we're given as followers of Jesus to call God Father. And that, too, we ought not to take lightly because you know what? People outside of God's covenant people have no right to call God Father. They don't. It's something given to us in Jesus Christ because we're in Him, in His Sonship, so we can call God Father. St. Paul reaffirms this teaching in Galatians 4, 6 where he says, and because you are sons, and we can also insert here daughters, God sent the Spirit of his son into our hearts, who calls Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then you are also an heir through God. Do you see what a gift that is? Not just to call upon the Lord as our father, as our dad, but to see him that way in every moment of our life. It's a special thing. Fathers and sons, or fathers and daughters, have a close relationship that's unlike any other. There's a story, some of you know that I'm a Civil War buff and like to, to read um, all sorts of things about the Civil War when I'm not reading theology. And uh, one of the stories that comes to us is one of Abraham Lincoln being in the war room, and he has the cabinet in session, it's the middle of the Civil War Things are not looking good, and so they're all around the table discussing what to do. And all of a sudden, his son, Tad, runs into the room, fiddles around in the desk, then runs out of the room without addressing anybody. And the, the cabinet's just, you know, taken aback. Who is this that could come into the White House and run around and in the middle of their meeting and not even greet the President of the United States? And of course, Lincoln in his Ryeway says, you know, boys will be boys, and just keeps on going with the meeting. But that kind of access to the Father, to the God Almighty, is the access that you and I have as Christians in Jesus Christ. It's distinguishing, a distinguishing mark of the first person of the Trinity, his fatherhood, his paternity, St. Thomas Aquinas says this, he says, now it's paternity that distinguishes the person of the Father from other persons. So it's crucial that we see that, and it's dear. But let's talk about the second person of the Trinity, the Son. Jesus, the Word, is also God. Jesus the second, is the second person of the Godhead. <coughs> Excuse me. And Jesus not only makes us familiar with God, 
but makes the audacious claim that he and God the Father are one. John 10.30 that I referenced once before, the Father and I are one. And in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only one himself God, who is in closest fellowship with the Father, has made God known. That is to say, Jesus Christ. So Jesus has that relationship with God as Father and knows him completely in a way that we only hope. In John 14, 9, Philip asks Jesus to see the Father, right? Show us the Father, Philip says. Jesus replies, have I been with you so long that you have not known me, Philip? The person who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The sonship of Jesus Christ is not just a relationship, relationship, but it's an act of love. A father willing to do anything for a creation that he created, first of all, out of love, and then fell into sin. And now he sends his son to redeem that creation. He's willing to do anything for it. And Jesus shows us that in himself, including going to death, the death on the cross for all of mankind. It shows the son's complete joy in obedience to the father that even in a task like that, he's obedient and joyful that this will restore us to him. Bishop Martin Sheen writes of this. He says, he that is Jesus held nothing back. All that he was in body, blood, soul, divinity. Jesus would lay down for them we could say here, for us, in total surrender. Where his blood, that of the Lamb of God, would be sprinkled, there would be the spirit and sanctification. And so we move to the third person of the Trinity because Jesus not only reveals God and teaches us, but tells us after his death and after his resurrection that he's going to send us somebody the third person of the Holy Trinity, who we celebrated last week, the Holy Spirit. In that death on the cross that Jesus made, we're washed and made acceptable before God, and yet the Holy Spirit has to be in us, for us, to be obedient to God. And so Jesus doesn't send us off on a fool's errand. No, he promises the Holy Spirit to bring about all things in us. Remember in Genesis 2, the Holy Spirit is no newcomer. He was there from the beginning. Where was, what was he doing? Did you catch it? What's he doing right before creation? The Spirit of God is hovering over the water. There from the beginning, part of the plan. And he comes upon people in the Old Testament too. He comes upon Joshua in Numbers 27, or on Judges, in the book of Judges. He, calls, he comes upon King Saul and King David in specific anointings of kingship, and upon prophets in the Old Testament to show the people back to God. And yet, the people continually turn away from God. But Jesus promises something different, a new way. Jesus says that his followers will receive the Holy Spirit that they will be indwelt with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will be in them wherever they go. 
John 16, 13, Jesus says this, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. You know, as I was going through that scripture this week, I came, I came across that verse, and it struck me in a way that I've never seen before. And that is the fact that whatever the Holy Spirit hears, he will speak. What does that mean? It means that he is there in community with the Son and the Father listening to what's going on in the Godhead and conveying it to us. He will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14 of John 16, He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. As we heard in the last week, last week's readings, the Holy Spirit leads and equips the apostles to do what? To proclaim Jesus and manifest his name to all nations. And here in today's gospel, he tells his apostles to do what? Go, and I'm sorry, but I can't avoid the old King James because I think it's the best. Go ye therefore into all the world, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. That's his promise to us, but that's his commission to us. And that's the mark that you bear. One of identification, but one of anointing to do something. To show forth Jesus, to show forth the triune God, to go out into the world that's muddled. I mean, we see this in the news over and over again. Oh, yes, you know, everyone's God is the same. And, you know, we just need to set aside our differences and get along. No, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus says. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and... Teach them, disciple them, show them who I am, show them how to walk in my ways. We're anointed for that purpose, the chief purpose. Many gods give direction and advice. Many gods give religion to follow or ways to become enlightened. But there's only one God who creates, dies to redeem, and sanctifies us daily. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And blessed be His kingdom, now and forever. Amen.